Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Chat, where we're working to destroy and dismantle stereotypes about justice-impacted people. We can't wait for you to hear from our next guest, so stay tuned. Hi, welcome, Chelsea Maldonado. We're so excited to have you on The Chat today. Hi, thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. So Chelsea is an investigative reporter and she runs campaigns. Um, She works deeply in the troubled teen industry. So please tell us, our listeners, more about what the troubled teen industry is and what you do in that field. Yeah. Um, So the troubled teen industry is really a colloquial term um, for America's network of youth residential programs. And so there are thousands of these facilities across the United States. Um, They operate under kind of a bunch of different names. So these can be considered residential treatment centers, wilderness therapy programs, youth shelters, um, psychiatric residential facilities, group homes. There's really just like a a lot of um, facilities that fall under this bucket. Um, The vast majorities of these facilities are private and a lot are for profit. We're seeing a lot of private equity backed uh, facilities now, as well as facilities that are run by some of the largest private prison and private hospital corporations. Um, my role in this space, I'm actually a lived experience advocate. So I went to a troubled teen industry facility when I was a teen, um, and I have since come forward and shared my story uh, through a blog and through a variety of different outreach campaigns. Um, and now I work alongside Paris Hilton and 1111 Media to try to pass the Stop Institutional, Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act, which is federal legislation. So, yeah. Okay, great. That's a ton. Um, thank you for stop for taking your lived experience and turning it into something that's, you know, helping other people. Um, right. So I'm going to go back and ask a few more questions about some of these things because I feel like that was a lot. So break down the difference between what is like a privately funded, like one of these um, troubled teen, you know, types of homes but also like what is troubled teen like who are the people that are being put into these places and then what's the difference between that privatization versus a public one and then i'll have more questions for you too because i heard you say paris hilton in there yes (laughs) okay um so you know historically a lot of these facilities were managed by the state so if you had a child who had a psychiatric issue or was in trouble with the law or potentially had a severe disability, you would most likely see your child placed into a state-operated facility. So that would be like a juvenile detention center, potentially a state asylum, um, or some sort of, you know, supportive care center. Over the last several decades, we've seen these services be privatized. And so instead of the state running these facilities and overseeing them, these are actually privately owned and operated programs that then kind of fall into a a new category of licensing and oversight. So they're not considered juvenile detention facilities. They're not considered asylums. They're not considered schools. They're something else. Um, and so, you know, we've seen that, that crop up. And now a lot of kids who are coming through these state pipelines, so through the juvenile justice system or through foster care, are being placed into privately owned facilities but through the state, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. So is this a good thing or a bad thing, I guess? Is it good for people to be going into these places? Is it bad? Does it make a difference if it's run by the state or not? 
I think it was well-intentioned. So, you know, definitely when you look back, um, historically, a lot of state-owned facilities or state-run facilities had issues of abuse and neglect. That is undeniable. So I think this started off well-intentioned. People thought if we privatize this, if we create something new, we won't have these same sorts of issues. Um, unfortunately, what we've actually seen is that there's a lot more abuse and neglect that is occurring in the for-profit facilities. And that is partly just by the nature of them being for-profit. Um, you have a financial incentive to keep kids longer. You have a financial incentive to cut costs um, and to not pay your workers as much. And so we see that play out in a lot of different ways. Um, the majority of staff, you know, is getting paid somewhere between 10 and $15 an hour. There's not a lot of entry requirements to become employed. Most of the services that would be provided by credentialed employees like psychiatric services, those are outsourced. And so kids may see those folks an hour a week, even though they're living in these facilities 24 hours a day. Um, and then the costs for taxpayers, it actually has not gotten cheaper. Um, I think that was part of the well-intentioned part. We thought that this would be a cost-saving measure. Uh, but what we're actually seeing is that states are paying anywhere between 200 up to $1,200 per day per child to place kids into these facilities, which is astronomical. Yeah. Yeah, you said 200, up to 200 a day? Starting at 200. Starting at 200 per day. Yeah, up to $1,200 per day. Yeah, and I mean, it can be even higher than that. That's just an average. Um, if you have a child that needs more intensive services or if this is, you know, more lockdown facility or intense facility, those costs can be significantly higher. So would this be considered like community-based care or is are there community alternatives that that money could be put into that might be more effective you know are there are these places effective are they producing the outcomes that they're intended to or do you know that's a huge question too yeah. um so that that ties into part of the bigger issue is that there's a lot we don't know um unfortunately even though there are as many as two hundred thousand children placed into residential programs every single year there's very little data collected at the state or federal level about what happens to these children in care, whether this care is effective, even how long kids are kept. Um, you know, anecdotally, I know people who have spent, you know, eight to 10 years in residential facilities. Um, is that good? Is that, I, I mean, I think we can probably agree that's not good, but we, we don't know. Um, that information isn't being tracked and that's a huge part of the problem. Yeah. And is there any type of like homes that people are like, none of that's being tracked either? Because I'm just trying to think of like, what kind of environment would somebody come from that they're going to out of like out of home placement for eight years, you said? Mm -hmm. And so it really, it really varies. So the reason it, it started being called the troubled teen industry in the first place was really the marketing that was used by these facilities back in like the 70s and 80s. So when, when these facilities kind of first got started, when we first started privatizing this industry, they really catered towards what we call private pay. And so these were parents who had the means to pay for their child to go to a residential program. Um, and maybe their kid hadn't yet gotten in trouble with the law or, you know, maybe they were on the verge of getting in trouble with the law. And this was a way to kind of, you know, divert that. Um, parents would place their kids into these facilities. And the marketing generally focused on a troubled teen. And so the words that they would use would come close to implying, you know, cr 
criminality or mental illness, but they would never quite cross that line. So a kid would be struggling or difficult or have bad behavior. Um, those were the kind of words that were used. And those were the kind of kids that were sent. So it was often just kids with typical teenage behaviors. Um, they would, you know, a lot of these facilities will kind of claim that they can treat anything from simple defiance to, you know, severe mental health and, and psychiatric disorders. Um, and so a youth, from what you're saying, doesn't necessarily have to, like, break any type of law or even status offense, because a lot of youth go into a juvenile system based on, like, status offenses, curfew violations, running away, things like that. You're saying none of that even actually has to occur before a young person enters into one of these places. Is that right? That's right. Yes. So a lot of these facilities, they accept private placement. So a parent can unilaterally decide at any point, my child has a problem and I would like to place them in the care of this facility that is claimed that they will treat this issue. Um, so just to kind of talk a little bit about my own story, um, when I was 17, I was actually sexually assaulted uh, by a friend. And I told my parents and we reported it and you know, as part of that, I had a therapist that I was involved with, and she was actually the one who recommended that I I go for inpatient treatment. And I didn't I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to an inpatient facility. I didn't feel like I needed that. And so she told my parents about a residential program out of state, actually out of the country, where they could have me placed for inpatient care without my consent. And so that was how I actually entered into the troubled teen industry. And in that case, you know, it wasn't really even necessarily about my specific behaviors so much as it was about we want our child to have treatment for this trauma that happened to them. Um, but, you know, I was there alongside kids who were placed for so many different reasons. It was kind of a, a catch-all for anything. So, you know, there were kids who had been involved in gangs. There were kids who, you know, had been sent to the program as like a diversion from going into a traditional juvenile detention center. Um, there were kids whose parents simply just didn't want them. And this was, you know, a place that would house their kid indefinitely. So there's just, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, and that was definitely like the earlier years of the troubled teen industry when it relied primarily on parental pay. Um, over the last couple of decades, we've seen a really big shift in that these facilities now have obtained a lot of contracts with states. So now we are seeing kids coming through, you know, on status violations or seeing kids coming through just as foster care placements. Um, my friend who, you know, spent eight years was a foster child. And these facilities were, you know, supposed to help her deal with the trauma of growing up in an abusive household. But in reality, I mean, she spent eight years in facilities that were completely locked down. You know, she wasn't allowed to have a normal childhood. And that's a trauma in and of itself. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story and, you know, those of others as well. And as, as far as like kind of painting a little bit of a picture of what some of these um, places look like, or most of them, um, most likely, is there, so you you had mentioned oversight, like, what is the oversight with this? Who is making sure, it sounds like there's a lack of oversight, like people aren't making sure that these are therapeutic or safe environments. Um, what, you know, do, what's being done in that area? Yeah, so that is, that's definitely a very complicated area. Um, 
when I mentioned that these facilities kind of carve themselves out into a gray area where they, they don't operate as a traditional juvenile detention center or mental health facility, they end up in kind of a gray area for oversight and licensure as well. So each state handles this differently. Um, and there's really no uniform standards across the country. So what might be licensed as a group home in California might be licensed as a residential treatment center somewhere else or could be not required to be licensed at all in some states. And so it's it's very patchwork um, and it's very dependent on how the facilities self-classify. One potential benefit of, you know, there being more kids coming through established you know, pipelines is that we might actually be able to obtain some data about those placements because there are data collection rules around kids in juvenile justice and through foster care. And that's kind of how we're able to get some of the insights into what's happening inside of facilities now. Um, but yeah, we, we don't know in a lot of cases. So I have to ask, like, why is this issue important to Paris Hilton as, as well? How did you get connected in, in that sense of, like, I know she's also, you know, in this space and takes a, a big stance against um, some of the things that go on in these spaces? Yeah. Um, so she is also, she's also a lived experience advocate. Um, so Paris is a survivor of the troubled teen industry. She was actually placed in, I think, five different troubled teen industry programs ranging from wilderness therapy to residential treatment in Provo Canyon School. Um, and that's actually how we became connected is through lived experience advocacy work around troubled teen industry stuff. Um, the founders of my facility actually got their start working at Provo Canyon School. And that's the case for a lot of these troubled teen industry facilities. It's a very closely connected network of people and places. Um, so these facilities were born out of Provo Canyon School, branched out all over the country and abroad. Um, and then, you know, later on, as we kind of untangle these connections and the similarities in our stories, you know, that's when we realized we need to start talking about this stuff. We need to, you know, share our stories publicly, make sure people are aware of what's going on in the troubled teen industry. Um, there was a hashtag breaking code silence that we all participated in and that's Paris as well. Um, and then she released her documentary and, and told her story to the world. And I think that really shifted kind of the public perception around this industry prior to that. I don't think most people realize that this actually existed, that this was real, that there were all of these facilities and that kids were really going through this. Um, but hearing that it happened to someone like Paris Hilton who has all of this privilege and wealth, you know, was still treated just so horrifically and inhumanely. I mean, imagine what is happening to people who don't have that level of privilege. And so I think that's, you know, kind of what the bigger story is, I guess. Yeah, I love that you bring it back around to that, too, because I think it's really important for people that have, you know, that status to, like, bring the awareness to it, but then to also have that realization of, like, what's happening to the folks that don't have that, you know, what and how many people are being silenced in the abuse that's happening to them. Um, so I'm glad that you bring it back around to that. I know we do a lot of, like, fun, I would say, 
fun, uplifting community type building stuff on Twitter, which I love, like connecting people with one another um, to join causes together that are similar. And we had talked a little bit about like, how is this similar to the criminal legal justice reform abolition movement? Because that's really, you know, what we focus on here. I see that there are overlaps. But like, what do you think the overlaps are with the troubled teen industry? And then, you know, perhaps the juvenile justice system or the criminal legal system? Mm-hmm. So I almost think of the troubled teen industry as, as kind of like the youth version of the private prison industrial complex. Um, you know, these are for-profit facilities that are housing kids for sometimes years at a time. I mean, kids are living in these facilities all the time. And the treatment that they have inside is is really no different from what you would see inside of a juvenile detention facility. Um, these are usually locked down facilities. Kids cannot come and go. They often do not have the right to call their parents to send unmonitored mail. A lot of these facilities use solitary confinement. They use physical restraints as punishment. Um, I know that my facility had in the contract that they could pepper spray you um, or use electronic disablers on them. And these are all things that we see in juvenile detention facilities today. Um, unfortunately, it's not illegal to use pepper spray on youth in juvenile detention facilities. We see it um, often. We see kids kept in solitary confinement. We see restraint used to the point that children are dying. Um, so there's a lot of parallels there. And then I also just think one is a pipeline into the other. Once you label a child as being troubled or as being a problem, I mean, that label sticks with them and that carries over into everything else. Um, And then I guess finally, you have the educational component. So, you know, while kids are living in these facilities, sometimes for years, these facilities are in charge of their education. And a lot of times this is just done kind of through packets or through online schooling. A lot of these facilities don't have teachers. They may not even be accredited. Um, So you could potentially do years of this schooling and then find out you don't even have a valid diploma. Um, But we know that when kids don't get a high school diploma when they're not given a chance to have a proper education, the likelihood that they will be involved in the criminal justice system goes up exponentially. And so I think we're just setting kids up for, you know, system involvement in the future when we place them into these facilities. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like when you were talking to, I was like, Oh, it was making me understand my own background a little bit better because, I mean, to truly, that was like, I started with the wilderness therapy and then you're labeled troubled and then, yeah, you're going to school somewhere else and you're not getting credit for it. I mean, it was like, literally, that was the story. And then, then you end up in the juvenile justice. It's, it's just like, a, and people start viewing you different. So like taking away the stereotypes of the folks that are going into these various types of systems you know what's really happening you know potentially there's family or parents that just you know maybe don't have the resources to take care of their kids or or there could be a lot of other things going on i think we're putting the labels in the wrong place um so yeah i'm glad you're flipping that on his head you know i'm glad you're like you know no (laughs) um that's not what this is so i know you have a federal bill that you've been working on, right? That is the STOP Act. What does that That's the Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act, yes. Okay. And what does that what does that stand for? And where is that moving right now? 
Mm -hmm. So that is actually in Congress right now. So we have a, both a Senate and a House version. So there's Senate Bill 1351 and House Bill 2955. Um, we have bipartisan support on both bills, and it's looking, fingers crossed, like it may actually pass. Um, so this bill is really a first step. So I know a lot that there just is not data. There's not information that is collected on what's happening in this in these facilities. And so what the Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act does is it creates an interagency working group that's going to bring together people from all of these different pipelines. So folks from juvenile justice, folks from foster care, folks from mental health and the disability space, as well as individuals with lived experience and other experts from the field, get them together and then begin collecting this data that is currently not collected, such as how many kids are in facilities Who's paying for it? How long are they there? Are they better after or not? What happens to them? Um, you know, things that you would assume we're already collecting. Uh, collect that, analyze it, and make policy recommendations every two years. Um, a lot of which has to happen at the state level. So states really have a lot more rights in this arena in terms of how to oversee and regulate private facilities than the federal government does. So at the federal level, we can start at least collecting the information, looking at the data, figuring out what's going on um, and how best to tackle this. Something that we've seen, you know, just on a smaller level, if you just close facilities without really taking a look at what the broader impact is, there are ripple effects, right? So in some states, we now have foster kids living in hotels. Um, in Oregon, there was just a story that came out recently that because of a lack of placements, they are paying up to $3,000 a day, a day, to put kids in Airbnbs. Um, and that's just run by one random nonprofit that puts a staff in the Airbnb with the kids. These aren't licensed. These aren't regulated. Um, so we don't, we don't want to do that on a massive scale, right? We don't want to create a new problem. So we just really need to figure out how do we fix this? What is the better system? And how can we protect kids in this country much better than we are now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm so glad you're doing this work. It's such important work. Um, and just to get something started at that federal level, even though you know you said the states have a lot more authority in the oversight, but just to start looking at things that we're not looking at, right? And it seems like that is universal. Like, yes, most people should say we don't want to have child abuse happening in these in these areas in these places so i hope that that ends up going through um it makes me think too when you're talking about you know putting kids up in airbnbs and things like that is like it, it almost makes an argument for universal basic income as far as like if we were just to give a lot of these families and i know that's not the case with all of these situations but i i presume a lot of them when you talk about the most vulnerable but gives these families the money Give that something to potentially maybe mediate some of the problems. You know, we know a lot of problems can arise due to poverty and not having your basic needs met. And I just see that this, you know, a lot of these co-occurring kind of issues that we have in the United States seem like they could be solved with, you know, some some help in that area. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that. It's just something. Absolutely agree. We have a territory that you can't address at the family level with three thousand dollars a day. Sorry, but like there, that's life changing money, and we are just yeah throat out there. So 
Yeah, throwing it into kind of just people don't know these kids, you know, in in a place, and and yeah, so it seems. I'm glad you're doing this work. I'm su- I'm 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 thrilled. I've been thrilled ever since I heard you were doing this work. So, um, I do. Ha- I want to know, like, other than your lived experience, which I'm sure drives you deeply and is a large part of your purpose, who have you kind of run into that has potentially mentored you or that you admire? Just kind of as far as characteristics that help you do this work? Mm-hmm. I mean, first off, I have to say, like, just the survivor community in general. So, you know, when I got out of my program, so it was a while back, um, you know, you get out and you you start to process what's happening to you and, and what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Um, and I was just so grateful that there was already a community online of people who had started talking about what had happened to them. Um, most of the people at that point were survivors of a program called Straight Incorporated. And they had, you know, a website, Surviving Straight. And there were, you know, different authors who were running blogs and Facebook groups and different online forums. And that was really what got me through that. That's what helped me to see, okay, what happened to me was, was not okay it was wrong but i also wasn't alone there were thousands of other people who went through something similar um and that was probably the most profoundly you know impactful thing for me was realizing that this wasn't just something that happened to a handful of us this was happening all over the place um and that's what really got me going in activism and then since then you know i I was lucky enough to participate in rise justice labs which was such an amazing experience. We were able to learn all about, you know, how to draft a a federal bill, how to promote it, how to get, you know, it into Congress. And that's really how we were able to do SICA. So I'm just so grateful for that experience. And then just within my my broader community, like I think what we're doing on Twitter right now is as small as it feels sometimes, I think it's so impactful. I think seeing advocates from all these different backgrounds that historically operated pretty siloed, right? If you were someone who understood the foster care system and was a foster care advocate, you were probably just going to stick to that niche. And same with troubled teen industry, same with juvenile justice. Even though all of these systems are intertwined, you know, the same facility pops up in everyone's race (laughs) and we're all studying it, but we're generally not talking. I think seeing that happening, that people are seeing the connections, they're they're sharing their stories and the overlap there. That's, I mean, that's what I'm living for right now. So, yeah, I love that. Thank you. So, community is huge. It sounds like I hear you say community, community. You know, being around others that understand and validate your truth, right? So you don't feel isolated, which is so important. Um, I. 100% agree with Twitter. I look forward to it all the time, Fridays especially, but in between, I'm just always following what's going on and seeing like what the latest work is and how it overlaps. And it is such a blessing. So um, I'm so glad you're on there. I'm so glad you're such a like a loud voice in that space. Um, let Could you explain what SICA is to our, our listeners? Because I don't know that everybody knows what that is too. And you just mentioned that and then the leadership program a little bit as well. Yeah. So SICA is the short version. That's what we refer to the Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act as. So that's my shorthand for that. So SICA is our is our bill. And then Rise Justice Labs is this amazing, um, it's 
like an incubator. And so if you are a nonprofit or a collective of advocates and you have an idea that you're really passionate about that you think could be, you know, made into a bill, I highly suggest looking into Rise Justice Labs. It's a competitive um, program, but they do, you know, mentorship throughout and you learn all the different aspects of, you know, lobbying and, and drafting and how government works and how, you know, how to be an effective advocate. And that was just really, that was such an awesome program. Um, and I can share that link with you so that you can share it with your listeners. If you yeah, that would be great. We can kind of add it in to here too. So people can um, click on it and yeah. yeah, I think that would be wonderful. Well, I, I is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before uh, we conclude this time together today? Um. No, I don't think so. I'm just really grateful, you know, to have this opportunity to talk about this. And I, I hope that everybody, I guess, takes away, you know, how interconnected these systems are. Absolutely. Uh, we'll include your social media handles um, as well. And at, um, you know, and when we post the video and also just resources for people, if anybody has been a victim or as a survivor of, you know, childhood sexual abuse or um, physical abuse or been in any of these institutions, we'll make sure to put some resources there that you can reach out to as well. So Chelsea, we just thank you so much for your voice and your time, your advocacy and all that you're doing in this space. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was an honor. I love all of this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for another episode of The Chat. We appreciate all of our listeners, viewers, and supporters. If you want to know more about The Uplift in The Chat, head over to our website at www.upliftmentors.org. Join our coalition, drop us a donation, or just spread some love and share this around with your friends and family.